BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by Pedro Gonzalez. Pedro is an editor at Chronicles Magazine and a newly minted senior fellow at the American Principles Project. We're going we're gonna to do a really deep dive with Pedro on this excellent media recent report he has put out on the transgender leviathan, as he refers to it. We're going to break down all that is happening with the transgender movement and why you, the listener, should care about what is happening with the transgender movement, specifically as it pertains to your children or anyone's children across the country. But before then, I want to spend just a moment here talking about my column from this past week entitled, quote, still against the, quote, dead consensus. I think it is a column that is worth spending some time contextualizing and focusing on for purposes of this show, which is a new right-oriented show. So in the aftermath of the Republican Party's disappointing results, to put it mildly, in last month's midterm elections, there has totally expectedly been a lot of chatter as to where the party should go here. And not just as it comes to specific personnel, there has obviously been a lot of chatter about Trump, DeSantis, 2024, and all of that stuff. We will have plenty of content on those particular issues for you in future episodes. But even perhaps more so than the personnel issues, there's been a lot of chatter that I have noticed about Substantively, whether the rebuke or the perceived rebuke of the GOP last month, and I, I, I say perceived because you have to remember here that Republicans still did win the national popular vote decisively by th- roughly three and a half to four percentage points, despite not gaining nearly as many seats as they want to. So, you know, all conclusions should be taken with at least some degree of salt from that. But there has been a lot of conversation that I have noticed about the extent to which this entire so-called new right project, this entire kind of less ideological, less abstract, more kind of concretely focusing on the voters' interests, slightly more nationalist, slightly more populist, slightly more realist about trade and foreign policy. There's been a conversation as to whether all of this should just kind of be thrown out of the window at this point. because And the basic argument is that the voters have rejected the, the new right and that I, I, I guess by extension this, this argument goes that they want to just go back to those good old halcyon days of George W. Bush, John McCain, and Mitt Romney, to which I not so politely respond, get lost. Fat chance of that happening. Zero chance of that happening, in fact. I mean, hold aside just for a second here the substance. Hold aside just for a second here the manifest empirical follies of the Bush-era moralistic nation-building, crusading stuff. The George W. Bush second inaugural address, the freedom agenda, we're going to march into Kabul, or we're going to spread Jeffersonian, Madisonian liberalism. Let's see how they like it there in the mountains with the Taliban. No, hold, hold the substantive tomfoolery aside for a second here. And let's just talk about kind of state by state 
as to whether the Republican Party is actually in a better state right now, despite all the various failures we talked about on our recent post-election post-mortem, and there are many. So state by state, as I said in my column last week, it gets a little interesting. So Trump, of course, won Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. He broke through the Democrats' blue wall in the year 2016. He narrowly lost all three of them in 2020. But they are all now considerably closer still, considerably closer than they were just 10 to 15 years ago or so. Ditto, by the way, Minnesota. Minnesota has become a much swingier state now than it was just 10, 15 years ago. Also in the Midwest, Iowa, Ohio, Missouri, all formerly purple states now looking very comfortably red. North Carolina is looking much redder than it was during Obama when it went to Obama in 2008. Indiana, which people forget, went to Obama in 2008. That's about as red a state as it gets nowadays. Virginia, actually, of all states. Virginia went back to the red column in 2021 due to Glenn Youngkin's culture war-centric campaign. New York State flirted really strongly with Lee Zeldin last month. Lee lost by about five points to Kathy Hockle, but his coattails were so long that he brought at least four congressmen across the finish line on the Republican side of the aisle. Out west, Nevada has become one of the swingiest states in the entire country. There's a Republican governor there now, Adam Laxalt, the Republican, barely lost his Senate campaign. Nevada was looking like it was heading for very, very blue terrain as recently as 10, 15 years ago or so. And in Florida, where I live, of course, Florida has emerged as the capital of red state America really over the past few years or so amidst COVID and kind of the influx here and the continued kind of shifting of the Hispanic vote here. Now, on the other side of the ledger, I I can identify two states, literally two states, that I think you can argue are bluer now than they were 10 to 15 years ago. Georgia, which is voting today, the runoff today is between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, and Arizona. That's pretty much it. That is really pretty much it. I think you'd be hard-pressed to name a single other state that is notably bluer now than it was 10 to 15 years ago during the days of the Republican Party's so-called dead consensus of laissez-faire absolutism, free trade maximalism, neoliberalism, avoiding the icky culture war issues and all that stuff. So for those out there who have kind of a cynical vested interest in returning to the days of the dead consensus, no. The answer is no. Because the new right is here to stay, and it's not going anywhere. And if anything, if anything, the midterm elections last month, as disappointing as they were, only buttressed that. And they only buttressed that because many of the preeminent culture warriors, folks like Ron DeSantis, won, and they won big. So we're going to have a lot more on that sort of content coming up over the next few months there, but had to get that off my chest for now. Let's take it to a quick commercial break. We'll be joined shortly on the other side by Pedro Gonzalez. We'll continue the culture war conversation with Pedro. Stay with us. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. 
Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back. So as previously mentioned, we have one of my favorite rising stars on the American right of center these days happens also to be a personal friend. That is Pedro Gonzalez. Pedro is an editor at Chronicles magazine and a senior fellow at the American Principles Project. He is also the author of the excellent recent American Principles Project report, The Transgender Leviathan. So Pedro, thanks so much for joining us this week. Oh, Josh, thanks so much for having me. You bet, man. So uh, I want to go deep on the transgender Leviathan. You put a lot of effort into this project and, uh, you know, based on kind of the traction that I see getting on social media, it seems to be getting at least a modicum of the credit that it thoroughly and richly deserves. But before then, for the listeners of this podcast who maybe are a little less kind of plugged into the Twitter sphere, who is Pedro Gonzalez? Tell us a little bit about kind of your story as to how you got to where you are. It's kind of I hope, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you know, one of the one of the leading right of center provocateurs from a cultural conservative perspective, I guess you might say. Oh well, thank you. Yeah, um, yeah that's a big question. Uh, I'll try to give you a small answer. I I think I'm just someone who has a both a, a healthy sense of curiosity and uh, risk. And maybe that sounds really, really simplistic and almost childish, but it just seems like there's there's a lack of that. Um, there's a lack of 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 interest in in important issues like transgenderism, uh, and a lack of a desire to go beyond the surface level, right? And I think that's really what motivates a lot of the things I do. Is on the one hand, as you as you alluded to, I'm not afraid of of controversy. And that's that's kind of where I live. But on the other hand, I I try to to look, you know, beyond the service level outrage at issues like this and, and give them the serious treatment that I think they deserve. And so with this report, it really began by noticing that a lot of the conservative criticisms of transgenderism to me seemed like I said, kind of superficial in the sense that, well, there's this man with a beard and a dress and purple hair, you know, and, and they're being made fun of by conservatives and like, that's all well and good. But it just seemed to me that, well, this issue doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And, and no matter how much we mock these people for their goofy ideas, um, it transgenderism just continues to proliferate and continues to be normalized and continues to be something uh, increasingly mainstream, especially as, as it pertains to children. And that's really the focus of this report is transgenderism, uh, which I mean, I, I I reject the the premise of transgenderism from top to bottom, but this report specifically focuses on how it affects children. And I just thought, well, you know, despite all the memes and the mockery, uh, this doesn't seem to be slowing down. So, in other words, it actually seems to be it actually seems to be much more serious. And so, I I took a, a closer look at basically what I think is is kind of like let's say the industrial base of transgenderism. And what I found was this is actually an extremely well-funded, uh, well-oiled machine. And in fact, it's it was bigger than even I had originally anticipated, which is why I gave the report the name of Leviathan. Um, as this massive 
beast that is sort of lurking beneath the surface of the waters and you can only ever catch glimpses of, of its true and sheer size and initially that that research turned into a short article for the new york post and i was i was actually very happy with how it was received because i had a, a lot of people came up to me and told me that 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 article basically changed the way that they had been looking at the issue whereas wow. before they had been looking at it as kind of a matter of ideas like this is something that needs to be reckoned with on on the level of ideology and when you believe that, then you believe that really all you need is just the better argument, right? Like you just need to to logically refute transgenderism and then the problem goes away. But obviously that's not true. And so when when I kind of added this this other element to it that actually this is a an extremely well funded machine that that you know entwines everything from uh, lobbying organizations to political action committees and NGOs. Uh, that also entwine with the interests of ideologues like the true believers, then it becomes a much more serious problem. And that short article in the New York Post became the basis of this report that's about 10,000 words long, but it's still really just the tip of the iceberg. And I mean, it, you're really just getting a glimpse of the problem, which is, again, why I use the term Leviathan. So I, I think that's, in a nutshell... It's some it will tell you something about me. You sure, know, I, I'm not sure. A, I'm not afraid of risk. I'm not afraid of controversy, um, but my my sense of uh, of of curiosity will kind of like lead me down these rabbit holes where I find horrible things and then try to 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 explain them uh, to a broader audience. So why why you know why the audience should actually care? No, totally. And I think anyone who knows you from afar can very easily pick up on your absolute refusal to kind of bend to a narrative that you do not wish to bend to and to challenge kind of prevailing orthodoxies and things like that. So with that as kind of tape, some table setting, let's let's dive in a little deeper here. So, you know, uh, the listeners of this show can access this report, to be clear, at reports.americanprinciplesproject.org. It's a rich 40-page document. So, Pedro, just walk us through a little more here. So the table contents of this report starts an introduction, then gets to patient zero, bad medicine, big medicine, coming for your kids, and then kind of concluding with with the way forward. So why don't you just walk us through a little more kind of step by step. And I, I guess I'd be most curious in what you alluded to there, which was the sheer amount of money that is behind this. Maybe you could focus a little bit about what you discovered as to where that money is coming from and what ultimately is the end goal. Yeah. So I'll start with the the second part of that question and then maybe return to the first. And so the global market valuation for sex reassignment surgery is expected to exceed 1.5 billion by 2026. Wow. That's just one estimate. That, that's just one analysis. Um, and I think that there are a lot of questions as to um, basically, it, it almost seems kind of low to me, uh, considering how, how quickly this stuff is proliferating. But on the other hand, and this is something that I noted in my report, uh, England, Finland, and Sweden are all pumping the brakes on transgenderism as it as it pertains to children. They're all realizing that this is a horrendous mistake. You know, it's almost too little too late because, I mean, it's, it's obviously good that that's happening, that there, that there is this reversal, uh, but you already have lives that have been irreversibly changed uh, or ruined as a result of this stuff. But basically, while the rest of the world is trying to to slow the tide or, or roll back the tide on this stuff, the United States seems singular in its commitment to the most extreme iterations of trans ideology. So I, I think that's 
maybe something also to do with with our healthcare system, where it's very, very easy to turn a profit on on all of this stuff. And so in a way, the report is it's about transgenderism, but it's it's also obviously getting at this broader problem of, of a healthcare system that seems to incentivize, you know, getting people hooked on on these treatments. And in the case of a, of a trans person, uh, you're really talking about a lifetime uh, medical consumer, someone who will be in and out of the clinic for the rest of their life as part of their gender affirmation. So it's it's really gruesome and as I know, to a degree, very cynical in that regard. So to give you kind of like a snapshot of of how this stuff works and how all these different parts interact, uh, I think a good place to look is AbbVie Pharmaceuticals. So AbbVie manufactures Lupron. This is the puberty blocker that's most widely used on children in the early stages of transitioning. The FDA currently shows over 30,000 adverse event reports for Lupron products, including more than 2,500 deaths. And I note that to show that, again, this is this is part of a broader thing, right, uh, of, of, a, of a system that's broken. Um, so Lupron is already a, a drug that's very controversial. Uh, there was an article recently in the New York Times. Uh, again, it's almost too little too late, but the article was about how we were increasingly liberalizing access to things like puberty blockers for adolescents, and maybe we shouldn't do that, right? And so the article raises these questions that, again, they're they're good questions, but it's it's coming from one of the one of the major newspapers that helped normalize this stuff. But in, in some of the letters to the editor uh, in response to that article, there are people that have been taking Lupron for other uh, other conditions. And their their response was shock. Basically, they said, like, I'm an adult who has to take this because of, like, prostate cancer, and I experienced horrible, horrible side effects. And you're telling me they're giving it to kids? And Lupron is such a powerful drug that it's actually used to chemically castrate the most deviant kinds of sex offenders. Wow. And the reason it's, like, by, by the most deviant, I mean, like, the ones that literally cannot help themselves and are the most likely to reoffend. And it's only used for those extreme cases and that type of person precisely because of the side effects, because it's such a potent drug. And again, we're giving this to kids now. Not that this matters much, but the FDA has not approved it for, for its use uh, as part of the the transition sequence. And yet it's one of the top two drugs that, that's used for that, for suppressing puberty. So in January, the Biden administration announced support for medical intervention for minors to quote unquote, change their gender. And it did that by citing research from the Trevor Project. The Trevor Project is a nonprofit that focuses on trans activism. Well, if you look at the IRS, uh, like if you look at IRS records, you'll see that AbbVie Foundation, which is obviously an arm of AbbVie Pharmaceuticals, yep. donated $50,000 to the Trevor Project. So basically you, you can kind of see that the problem here, this conflict, right? Where you have a, a pharmaceutical company that stands to benefit from research that justifies the use of its products is giving to a nonprofit that you know appears to be totally independent is just engaged in activism you know for for the good of trans people and they're all but at the same time they're actually being paid by a pharmaceutical company that benefits from the use of this and the White House cites that research as a justification for administering these drugs to adolescents to children. So in terms of state politics, and this is this is where something I note in my report is just how difficult it is to really get a bead on the money and and you know um how it moves because it 
it, it's really difficult to track this. It, it, it moves in, in um, through all of these different organizations. I mean, especially on the state level, it's very Byzantine. But what we do know is I give this example because it's, it's such a perfect example that kind of encapsulates how absurd all this is. In California, AbbVie has donated to candidates like uh, State Senator Scott Weiner, a San Francisco Democrat who publicly promotes BDSM and has suggested as an idea for a bill offering Drag Queen 101 as part of the K-12 curriculum. And uh, he, he said that attending Drag Queen Storytime would satisfy the requirement. So, but Weiner has actually um, helped pass and authored laws that are kind of consistent with what you just what you just glimpsed here. So, for example, he helped pass a law that reduced the penalty for knowing uh, knowingly exposing someone to HIV from a felony to a misdemeanor. So that that's kind of a snapshot. It all fits. Of, of yeah, I mean, like it's very easy to kind of connect the dots here, and that was really quite helpful. So, thank you for that. I I, I mean. I guess the one thing that I'm sitting here, having heard you just explain that in that level of detail and still trying to figure out a little bit is, is the primary vested interest more kind of a pure kind of monetary bottom line interest for big pharma? I mean, the likes of which we've seen with kind of the pushing of these novel vaccines over the past couple of years with COVID and so forth, or is it something even more pernicious, which you kind of were alluding to there at the end with this Scott Wiener fellow who I've never heard of out of, out of the, the Bay Area. And, you know, when at that point, we're just talking about the straight up kind of sexualization of prepubescent teenagers and uh, frankly, just the grooming of children. So I, I, are, is, is, it, is it fair for me to conclude that those are kind of the two main driving forces here? Yes. And I think that's that's generally true for most things in politics is that there's always two two motives. And those two motives, I think, can be summarized as ideology and interest. And that's really the case that I'm making in this report is that um, I, I really don't believe in being an extreme in, in either or, which is to say there are people that will say, well, it's just about the money. That's all this is. It's this kind of cynical ploy to make tons of money. Or it's actually um, it's it's actually about the ideas that you know, somehow this this all comes back to like Michel Foucault or something like that. Um, and, and these other like leftist philosophers, uh, I actually think it's most things are a bit of both. And so in the case that I just gave you, would someone like Scott Wiener, although he does get money from AbbVie, he wouldn't have to get money to promote these things. Um, and I, so what I'm trying to show is the confluence between ideology and interests, between between the structural interests that stand to benef uh, benefit materially and also the ideologues who would push these things regardless of of the money involved but they certainly you know it certainly helps having uh money involved here so and i'll give you another example there's a dr stephen m rosenthal who's the uh, co-founder and medical director of uh, ucsf child and adolescent gender center uh and so rosenthal uh, recently wrote an article in the San Francisco Chronicle, and he condemned a bill in Idaho that if it had been signed into law, it would have banned surgeries, puberty blockers, and hormone therapy for minors. So Rosenthal argued that um, basically this this stuff is life-saving, right? And he probably really does believe that. Rosenthal probably actually believes what he's writing, that, that you know we need to transition little kids, otherwise somehow they'll be in danger. Well, I looked at Rosenthal's, you know, like... Um, at these these databases that show basically which doctors receive money in connection to what drugs and it turns out that rosenthal has received money in connection to both lupron and superlin la 
Uh, both of these are the top two drugs that are used in uh, suppressing puberty in trans youth. But, and this is another important point, um, Rosenthal's research into early medical intervention in trans children and adolescents received a $5.7 million award from the National Institutes of Health. Wow. And so for people like Rosenthal, again, I'm sure he believes it, but there's also an incentive structure for him to believe it in case his faith falters in this stuff. And, and so that's really what I'm getting at is the confluence of these two things, because I think I think you have to consider them side by side. Um, and that's also why, why when we can prove that this that these treatments do not improve mental or physical health outcomes, that these treatments are based on studies that are either either deeply flawed or proven false after the fact, it continues it continues happening. We we continue doing this stuff, and I think the answer for that is is again this mixture of ideology and interest. Like you're you're really talking about a um, a leviathan. You are and. I'm glad that you mentioned NIH there because NIH, obviously, of all organizations in America, has been particularly non-innocent, you might say, over the past couple of years of just persistent gaslighting and perpetual moving of the goalposts as to what the various goals of pandemic so-called policy have been and so forth there. So it's really interesting, I think, to kind of connect the dots from NIH's various mess-ups in one context to perhaps their kind of ideological kind of uh, frothing in this other context as well here. But let's take it to a quick commercial break. Again, we're listening here with Pedro Gonzalez of Chronicles Magazine and American Principles Project. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pedro, one thing that I've personally been thinking a lot about because I'm a lawyer by background, I tend to think about kind of lawsuits and litigation and some of that maybe a little more often than some others here in the right of center commentariat space. But I've been thinking a little bit about what it might take for the American people to finally put a stop to this horrific social experiment and really social social contagion, as you have argued, as Abigail Schreier has argued, that really ultimately is what it is. It's something of kind of a of a widespread psychological panic, frankly. That really is kind of the crux of Abigail Schreier's book on this particular issue. And and one thing that I have thought of as one possible means to eventually end this quite wretched and frankly, in many ways, kind of unhuman experiment and, you know, chopping off the breasts of very healthy 12-year-old girls and so forth there is I, I think like a massive national class action lawsuit one day of all of those who have been wronged by quote-unquote gender-affirming care. Do you have any other ideas as to, as to how this thing possibly ends? Yeah, I think there's, there's um, a much more difficult question, obviously, as with everything about culture because something that i get to in my report is um the the idea that of how this stuff spreads and one example i give is is uh peer contagion and social contagion basically that like like anorexia which is you know we, we on the one hand we know anorexia is bad on the other hand we know that anorexia spreads um through through peer groups you're basically the people that are immediately around you and also through uh through social um, social contagion, which is to say that 
social media through through the culture in other words um and there was a doctor uh, her, uh, her name is Lisa Lippman, and, and she authored this study about how basically transgenderism seems to be spreading the same way that anorexia spreads. Uh, one person in a peer group um, will become uh, will begin having these eating disorders, and then more people as part of that peer group will, will begin also experiencing the same thing. And then people outside of the immediate peer group will be influenced by that group uh, through social media. And ba basically, it, it begins with this unhealthy fixation on on a you know like a, a bad conception of of body image, and again, very very similar to transgenderism. And of course, Lippmann with was was um, scathingly criticized by the left for for writing this study. Um, but this is a much harder thing, right, to deal with because you're you're talking about culture and how do you deal with that? Um, and all all the parents that Lippmann spoke to said that before uh, their daughters began experiencing distress about their bodies and, and ultimately decided that they were trans, uh, it was usually preceded by heavy social media use and having other friends in their peer group decide that they were trans. That it, virtually in every single case, that's what happened immediately before their own children decided that they were trans. So I, I think the 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 culture thing is um it's it's a difficult question because it also uh, involves time uh, it, it's it's not something that you can fix overnight in other words but i think that there are other things that we can do you know with with political power uh to affect change and so i think basically one of one of the most obvious and and like kind of like the big picture goals here is to just um gender affirming medical treatments so puberty blockers cross-sex hormones surgeries these things should be outlawed for minors like sex reassignments in general should be considered quackery um right i mean I, I sorry to cut you off but like the question that i always have is i mean forget about for minors i mean isn't this just like a blatant yeah. violation of the hippocratic oath and a total bastardization yeah. of the medical profession in general yeah that's right just in general it should be considered like you know like lobotomies or something or, you know, it wasn't that long ago uh, that we were administering things like radium, this radioactive material that gave people cancer and actually sterilized them. Uh, we were giving it to people in the form of suppositories and, and other ways uh, actually to, to fix uh, their, their reproductive and sexual problems. I mean, you can, th this is, sounds crazy, but in the 20th century, we were giving people radioactive material. Uh, we were telling like the, it was being marketed as this is going to fix your sexual issues and your reproductive issues. And ironically, all it did was sterilize them just like transgenderism. And ultimately I think that's, that's how, and I hope we look back on this stuff, but what in real terms that means is that basically hospitals, clinics, and physicians administering these procedures have to face fines and have their medical licenses revoked, yep. you know, on the federal level, uh, the NIH needs to be, I mean, this, this obviously uh, entails control of the white house, but basically like if, if if I'm president or uh, yeah president for a day, I'm taking the NIH and I'm cutting off uh, any grants um, that reward research uh, to institutions that condone or facilitate hormone therapies or general mutilation uh, as best practices or like standards of care for any of this stuff. Just completely cut off the spigot on the federal level because that's a big part of it. Uh, and then going back to your point, I actually asked a friend of mine who's who's also a lawyer for basically for help on this part because I was struggling with articulating this. Um, but basically what we, what we, the conclusion that I came to with his help was that we need to create liability for 
the institutions and entities that are promoting products and services associated with affirmative care treatment. So basically, it, it must be really risky um, to either conduct or advertise these procedures anywhere in America. And that gets back to the lawfare thing that you're that you're talking about. That you're right. The right doesn't really think in these terms, right? This this is actually the domain of the left is is thinking right. in terms of like lawfare mostly. But this is how we have to think uh, if we're going to get serious about this. Totally. I mean, in some ways, actually, the whole is a different issue, of course, but um, it's kind of related. In some ways, the whole Section Two Thirty liability shield discussion in the big tech context, I think, has some parallels here. I mean, that kind of got conservatives, or it accustomed them at least a little bit to thinking in terms of more lawfare tactics, in terms of kind of stripping liability shields and making kind of their political adversaries, whether it's in the corporate sphere or the technological sphere or the medical profession, academia, whatever, making them a little more liable to be kind of dragged into court and to answer for their various crimes. So I, I, I do think that there are some potentially interesting parallels there, but um, I, I certainly think about kind of lawfare uh, pretty often, like I said, just for very simple dint of the fact that uh, for better or for worse, I, I, I am an attorney. Pe- Pedro, one other thing I want to talk with, with you about, because you have this newly minted title, a senior fellow, fellow at American Principles Project, and Terry Schilling, who's the president of APP, who's been a friend of mine for for, for years now, Terry and I have have had private discussions about the extent to which Republicans just don't run on these issues. I mean, I can't give you the exact year, but I can distinctly recall having a conversation with Terry, who again is the president of American Principles Project at some point just a handful of years ago, about why Republicans don't run, for instance, on kind of the transgender sports issue, which, you know, I haven't looked at po- public polling over the past few weeks or months or whatever, but at least as of a year or two ago was like an 80-20-90-10 issue correctly on the side of civilizational sanity, where, you know, where Leah Thomas effectively would be barred yeah. from, from competing. So uh, why is it more broadly that Republicans and people on the right tend to just shy away from this issue? I mean, is it is it just simple stigmatization? Is that kind of the very easy and obvious and exclusive answer, you think? So I think part of it, obviously, and I'll just get this out of the way, like there's, there's the the monetary incentives of pushing transgenderism don't just apply to Democrats. Obviously, Democrats uh, seem to reap the lion's share when it comes to giving that's related to, you know, like who's getting money to push what. It's, it's obviously mostly Democrats. But on the other hand, this actually makes Republican support or indifference to transgender or yeah i should say that this makes republican support for transgenderism uh, in in the cases that it does exist or or kind of like tacit approval for it in some ways much more pathetic because it's like it makes sense for democrats to push this stuff because they benefit financially and politically but for republicans to push it um there there's really no incentive so in other words it almost means that republicans seem to be, the, the republicans that do support this stuff actually seem to believe in it more than democrats that's just something to, to chew on um, because Republicans are supposed to be the countervailing force. But in some cases, it actually seems like they believe in the the, the agenda items of the Democratic Party right. more than some Democrats who are very cynical do. Um, another part of it is that transgenderism can be dismissed by Republicans who are not supportive, but sort of ambivalent or indifferent to it because they, they view it as like, well, it's not a pocketbook item, right? It's not something that you know. It, we're not we're not talking about like the real things here. Uh, it's too removed from people's lives, and in a way that's that's actually 
why I wrote this report was for people like that to be confronted with this and to completely dispel the idea that this is just something that's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a culture war item in the sense that it's kind of, uh, in the sense that that term is used as a term of derision, right? It's just something that's part of the latest outrage fad and therefore it's passing and just not really has any bearing on, on reality and the lives of real people, but that's just not true at all. This, uh, th this, this has, uh, dire and immediate consequences for 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 people for real people for their own constituents um you know when parents are showing up to school board meetings to protest uh the the ideology of transgenderism being taught in schools and they're being monitored by the federal government i mean that's real um when social workers and ideologues and physicians are working with courts in order to figure out how to take children out of homes um, where parents decide that they do not want to allow their kids to permanently and irreversibly destroy their bodies uh, as part of, you know, becoming trans or whatever, like that, that's a very serious problem. Abigail, um, Abigail Schreier has, has documented some of these cases for City Journal, uh, but you hear about them more and more all over the country, you know, uh, social workers getting involved and basically working with courts to separate kids from their parents. Uh, like these things are very real. And so I think that's that's part of it. That's that's one. Uh, let's say the second part of it is is basically um, not viewing it as a real issue, which again is is what partly inspired this report to show people actually this is extremely real. Uh, it's an existential issue in my view. And the third part of it is actually maybe the most difficult one. It, it, I think it's just something in the in the conservative disposition to to kind of. To not really, uh, th this is, uh, like I said, this is difficult, um, but basically a lack of vision. And what I mean by that is, yes, what the left wants to do is is horrifying to the average person, you know, to the normal people. Uh, their, their dreams look quite often like nightmares to us. But when you're talking about completely uprooting and inverting institutions like the family, like sexuality and in in some cases like obliterating these categories um there is a kind of there there is a sort of vision behind that uh that's that's both far-reaching and consequential for civilization and it's just it doesn't really seem to be a, a something that conservatives uh or people that are involved in like you know making policy and things like that they, they don't really think in these terms they think more of like sort of like well let's fix the broken shoelace on the ground in front of me instead of let's reimagine society as we know it, which seems to be something that the left does and excels at. And the right is just sort of thinking, conservatives are more thinking of like, you know, let's let's tinker with taxes or with, right. I don't know, with, with these things that are sort of like, kind of like the, let's focus on uh, how our stomach feels uh, at, at the moment and not think beyond that. Well, it's um, I mean, it's kind of the modus operandi of the left. I mean, if you think back to what Barack Obama said on the precipice of his landslide 2008 presidential election, he famously said that we are, you know, just weeks away, days away, whenever it was exactly when he said it, from, quote, fundamentally transforming the United yes. States of America. I mean, th that right. right there is exactly how the left thinks. I mean, that quote yes. and that, uh, that the other infamous quote from Rahm Emanuel about never letting a good crisis go to waste, which we saw kind of the quintessence of it, of course, with Fauci and Burks and Walensky and everyone during the public health apparatus and the pandemic. You know, those yes. that is how the left thinks. And, yes. and, and the right should think, if nothing else, 
about defending the most rudimentary basic principles upon upon society, male and female family. I mean, in theory, those should be the building blocks of an American right counterproposal to that fundamental transformation and so forth. But of course, you're right, just empirically speaking, just observing the playing field that far too often Republicans do fail woefully short. But Pedro, let's get you out of here on, on this question. And perhaps it's it, you know, we'll use it as a segue to hopefully what could be a slightly more optimistic way to close out this wonderful conversation, which is, are, are there any leaders that you might be able to point to who you think are doing a good job or at least are starting to do a good job as this whole debate starts to pick up steam when it comes to fighting this particular fight? Yeah, I think there's a lot of good things happening in Florida. Uh, in Texas, I'll come back to Florida, but in Texas, um, although if, if you follow me, you know that I've been critical of Greg Abbott because basically I've, I've my concern with Greg Abbott is that he um, he will do things for publicity, but then not follow through with them, you know, like he'll declare an invasion on the southern border, but then he won't actually treat it as an invasion. Um, but I have to say that Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has talked about investigating AbbVie and Endo Pharmaceuticals, the two companies that make the 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 drugs most commonly used as part of the puberty suppression sequence in, in transitioning. Uh, he, he has talked about investigating them under the Texas Deceptive, uh, Deceptive Trade and Practices Act to determine uh, whether these drugs are are um, are being marketed directly to trans youth, despite not being approved for that. So, like, I think that that's great. You know, if, if something actually comes of that, that's fantastic. That that's exactly how we should be treating this stuff. Uh, but in Florida, I've, I think DeSantis has really been sort of like the uh, Governor DeSantis has has sort of taken point on the issue. In terms of all these different things you've seen, you know, like the the willingness to fight with a gigantic company such as Disney um, over legislation that that challenges the ideology of transgenderism, the uh, Parental Rights and Education Act. Um, th there was a, a smaller dispute that I think is still um, fascinating in, in its implications. You had a uh, an establishment in Florida that had been hosting drag queen, uh, I don't know what to call it. They were like drag queen performances, um, but but they specifically marketed them uh, or advertised them to like families. So basically like bring your little kids. And videos of these performances started going viral where you had, you know, men dressed as women um, wearing basically as like strippers doing these like really grotesque performances around, you know, like six-year-old kids. And the response from the from the DeSantis administration in Florida was, um, this stuff needs to stop or we're going to revoke your beverage license, which for that business was a death sentence. And I think that that's the kind of seriousness that we need to treat this issue. Uh, obviously, we, we want to make sure that there's that there's a there's a consistency between, you know, threats and results so that we're not just making empty threats and then nothing comes of them. But I think Florida has been kind of showing that on the one hand, it this it's possible to use uh, political power to advance a, a cultural agenda, and on the other hand, that you'll be rewarded for it. I mean, like that that's been another big thing for Republicans. I think like I kind of fear that if I take a stand on this issue, somehow this is going to be, you know, um, political suicide for me. But you see that at least in Florida, um, the way that the administration not only takes on the issues but frames them. You know, we're protecting children from sexualization. Uh, that it's it's extremely popular, and and of course it would be, 
Uh, so I, I think some of the most interesting stuff that's happening right now on this front is happening in Florida. Well, as a Floridian who has been glancing outside his window at the ocean, which looks really quite lovely today at various points during this conversation, Pedro, I certainly agree with you. That is certainly the view from down here as well. Uh, Pedro, we're unfortunately out of time for this particular conversation, but this has been really illuminating. I hope the listeners took away a lot from it. And once again, you can go ahead and check this out at reports.americanprinciplesproject.org. So Pedro Gonzalez, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thank you. Thanks again to Pedro Gonzalez for stopping by. So two themes that we touched upon there at the end of this conversation that I think are worth just fleshing out a little bit. The first is what we were saying in comparing kind of the most rudimentary building blocks as to what a healthy, vigorous, and salutary American right should stand for in contrast to the Barack Obama-esque fundamental transformation tendencies of the left. And what I'm talking about here is the literal building box blocks of society. It, think about the love affair that the American right, the modern capital C conservative capital M movement since its you know, you know, modern day incarnation with the founding of National Review and William F. Buckley and all that in the 1950s. Think about the love affair that the modern conservative movement has had with the American founding. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equally, the famous words of the Declaration of Independence, the famous axioms embedded therein in the U.S. Constitution of 1787 in Philadelphia. You know, if we actually take seriously the idea that there are truths, that there is order, and that this order and these truths, as the Declaration of Independence claims— can be discerned by pure reason. Self-evident was the Lockean liberal term that Jefferson borrowed there for that document. Shouldn't it be so obvious that there is man and there is woman? Just as the Bible says, by the way, in Genesis one twenty-seven. And if you are the conservative movement and you purport to love the American founding and you purport to care about this stuff, shouldn't this be a genuine, literal hill to die on? the notion that there are men and women in this society, the whole idea of family values is, in, is an absurd misnomer if you are not fighting for the very basic unit, the nuclear family, that can produce children and sustain what Burke would have referred to as this intergenerational compact between the dead, the living, and the yet unborn in the first instance. I mean, if there is any topic currently roiling our politics that is crying out to be seized and fought upon with all the vigor and might out there, it is this particular issue. Even more so than kind of the specific kind of same-sex marriage issues or the, or the cake-baking controversies. You know, this week there was a major Supreme Court case called 303 Creative LLC at the U.S. Supreme Court. And I certainly hope that Lori Smith, who is the Colorado wedding website designer, I hope that she prevails uh, against the Colorado Civil Rights Commission that much like Jack Phillips, the cake baker, just a handful of years ago, they are seeking to impose this law upon her. But even more so than that, and that's a, that, that's a clear-cut winning 
case, in my opinion, for Lori Smith. I, I truly, truly hope she pre- she prevails. It is, it is a very clear-cut, compelled speech First Amendment claim, and I do predict she will prevail. But even more so than that, I think, is the, is, is the transgender issue. If you are not going to fight on this issue, if you are not going to make a stink of this issue of Leah Thomas just making laps on these female competitors— if you are not going to make this a hill to die on, then what issue is a hill to die on? Seriously. I mean, we know what the left is trying to do. You heard Pedro lay it out there. They have the financial interest. There is the sexualization, the grooming interest there. They have all that. This is the fundamental transformation that Barack Obama has talked about. For the love of God, if you are a conservative, take this issue and run with it. And final quick thing to touch on here, as Pedro also accurately said, some Republicans have figured this out. Again, I live here in Florida. I sound like a broken record because of how much I talk about this state. But Governor DeSantis has emerged as the American right's preeminent culture warrior. He has not only not shied away from all of these salient culture war fights, he has dived in headfirst whether it's critical race theory, racialist indoctrination in education, whether it is the parental rights law that the critics like the Walt Disney Company refer to as the so-called don't say gay bill, all of these issues. You heard Pedro talk about nearby where I live in Miami, Florida, this drag exhibition was shut down by, by you know prudentially using government power as the case may be in effect, to punish an enemy of basic order, which is an institution like this that was grooming children. So some politicians have figured it out, and more to the point, those politicians that have figured it out and have fought these culture war fights prudentially have been rewarded. Governor DeSantis won 62 of 67 counties in the state of Florida, including Miami-Dade County, the most populous county in the state, a 70-plus percent Hispanic county by 11 points. So look, you don't have to look very far. You really don't. As long as you are smartly picking your battles, don't do so willy-nilly, there is nothing to be afraid of of fighting those icky so-called culture war issues that the various kind of Beltway consultants and K Street lobbyists and all that would really rather that the American right run away from. But again, I return to the most fundamental question of all, which is if you are not going to run on these issues, what is man, what is woman, and so forth, then just get the hell out of politics because you are frankly just dead weight at that point. I mean, if if you're not going to fight on this, then I do not give a damn about your various fixations about capital gains tax policy. But on that particular note, once again, thanks so much for tuning in to The Josh Hammer Show. We'll see you next time.